Welcome to Mind Rolling, and I'm Raghu Marcus with my partner here. Uh, David Silver, hi. And uh, we have a, a terrific program today with somebody who's uh, an old dear friend and uh, someone I haven't had a chance to spend much time with in the last years, especially uh, once she uh, moved out to Colorado, Lama Tsultrum Alioni. And uh, Lama um, was in India around the time that I was in India with uh, Ramdas. actually returned uh, just around the time that I left Sultram. I think you came back by the end of 69, 70, something like that, Lama? Um, I first met Ramdas in 1967 when he came to India with David Padua. Oh. And then I met you all in Bodh Gaya in uh, early 1971, I think. That was uh, 1970, uh, end of 1970, early 1971, that's right. Okay, yeah. And then I came back and met you again in Vermont. Was that end of 1972? That was the end of 1972, right, when we were going yeah. up to see uh, Trumpa Rinpoche. Yeah, and I came up to that house that you had. With my dad over the Vermont border, that's right. Yeah. That's yeah, right. I came up there for a few days uh, yeah. when, uh, when I was still a nun. That's right, and that's right, and that's, uh, we knew you as such then. So, um, you know, what, what, we ask this of, of all of our uh, guests that we have on, uh, just to tell us a little bit, as you, as you, in your teenage, teenage years and as you into your early 20s, what were the triggers for you for transformation? I mean, David and I have talked, obviously, about psychedelics. We've talked about music. We talked about encountering Eastern uh, spirituality and basically talked about there was, you know, a lot of uh, personal oppression and depression that, that uh, led us to keep asking the questions. What was it for you, Lama? Uh, well, I think it first started to happen waking up, that is. When I was a teenager, I remember one specific incident when my, my grandmother uh, was a really interesting woman. She was the fifth woman to get a PhD from Harvard, mm. and um, her PhD was in philosophy. And so she was a very thoughtful person, and she had given me a book of Zen poetry. And so... It was summer, and I had been reading these poems, and then I climbed out onto the, onto the roof of our house, um, sort of a porch roof, and it was overlooking a lake, and it was very, very quiet. And I heard pine needles falling on this asphalt shingle roof, mm. so really they don't make much noise when they fall on that kind of roof. And so there was something about being that quiet and hearing the sound of the pine needles fall that triggered an awareness of awareness in me. Hmm. And, and that combination with the Zen poetry and that 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 experience. So uh, I I see that as a as a 
moment of in some way beginning my path. I wouldn't say I was spiritual, particularly as a child, except in so far as I was really wild. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, really wild in the sense of nature. Like I, I love to be barefoot. I love to run outside in really intense thunderstorms and, you know, just in that sense of being very um, close to nature. Mm. And for me, that was really a spiritual experience. And then I went to college and, um, like many of us, didn't find what I was looking for in college. I went to the University of Colorado and, mm. um, and then left in the beginning of my sophomore year and went and lived in Haight-Ashbury. Oh, really? Uh, 19, uh, 1966. And um, it was before the whole summer of love and all that. Mm. And so I um, then with that experience, of course, I was taking some psychedelics and there was a psychedelic bookstore there. And so I began to become aware, more aware of Eastern philosophy, and we'd go there every day and throw the I Ching. They had one in there, and you could just use it. And so there were things like that that I did. And, um, and then when I was 19, my friend, uh, Vicki Hitchcock, who did the films Blessing and When the Iron Bird Flies, oh. Um, Vicki Hitchcock, and she invited me to go to India with her. And our parents, we had both dropped out of college, and our parents were hoping we'd find some meaningful experience in India that would get us back on the straight and narrow. And, um, of course, it had the opposite effect. (laughs) (laughs) We we went to India, and, um, and that's when I went to Nepal, and we were supposed to work with Tibetan refugees, but because of the situation in uh, China, between China and the United States, as diplomat's daughter, she, her father was the consul general in Calcutta. Wow. So, as a, as a daughter of a diplomat, we weren't allowed to do that. But what happened to me was one morning very early in the morning, really in the night, about four o'clock in the morning, um, I heard this huge sound in the street in Kathmandu. And it was this sort of makeshift band of Nepalese people. What they were actually doing was going to walk through the rice fields to wake up the rice. And uh, so they, they... they walk through the streets with making, you know, with just banging pots and pans. Yeah. And they had some old beat up trumpets and, <laughs> you know, drums and stuff. Anyway, so we got up and followed them. And they went across the bridge, across the rice fields, and then to the bottom of Swambu, which is a sacred mountain in the Kathmandu Valley. And then they began to climb up this mountain, and there's a staircase that goes all the way up, straight up from the bottom. And so we followed them up, and just as we reached the top, the sun was breaking over the valley, 
and the Tibetans came out of their monastery mm. with those long horns, those huge mm. Tibetan long horns, and began to sound them. And it was this sort of sound before you were born. Right. And uh, and so that that was when I I met the Tibetans. And so for me, meeting the Tibetan people was really awakening experience, mm. my first awakening experience, uh, or reawakening experience, besides taking psychedelics and that some of that, but it was this sort of longing that I felt when I met them mm. that really triggered me. Right. And maybe talk about your first encounter, your first teacher, guru. Mm -hmm. Talk about that a little bit. That time when I was in Nepal in 1967, um, I stayed there in Kathmandu for a while. And then I hitchhiked across India with a Japanese traveler named Saramora, and we went to Dharamsala. And so the first real encounter, direct encounter with a Lama was a Lama named Geshe Raptan in Dharamsala. But I didn't really have much relationship with him because Sawamura went to live there with him, but as a woman, I wasn't allowed to go live there. And so I met him maybe twice, and I was very impressed with him. He was like a, he was like a mountain. He looked like a mountain. He wow. was really solid, um, strong being sitting on this bed. Mm. And then um, during that time in Dharamsala, I did a fasting ceremony called Nune. And in that ceremony, you don't eat anything uh, for or drink anything for... One day, and then the next day you drink and eat in the morning, and then you don't, again, have anything else to rest that, that day and the day following. And you're doing a lot of prostrations during that time. And so it was very, very intense. And I had no idea what I was doing and what it all meant and why, why you would do this. But anyway, I, I was doing it. And then in the middle, I got word that um, a llama... And I believe it was Ling Rinpoche at the time. I didn't even know who it was. But I had asked to study mandala painting in mm. Dharamsala. And so I found out that I had an interview with him about that. And so I left that Nune ceremony, walked up to Dharamsala, and then walked into the room with him. And he told me, it would take a year of study before I began to draw the mandala. Mm -hmm. And then he said to me, um, the time that you spend in spiritual practice is the only time of any value mm. wow. in your life. And that really struck me. That, so, yeah... So I, I was obviously very open at that point, having been fasting and in this whole experience. I went into this room in the monastery, quite dark and full of tankas and the butter mm. lamps 
flickering. And then he told me that. And so that was also a really key message for me. Mm. Right. That uh, then um, triggered me mm. toward, toward the path. Right. How old were you then, Lama? 19. <laughs> and I had met um, Richard Alpert when he had arrived. That when I was in Kathmandu at that time before Dharamsala, I was actually living with Bhagavan Das. Oh, I don't remember that. Oh my God! Wow, that's a movie. Yeah, right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was living with Bhagavan Das, and the. Um, in this little house at the base of Swambu Mountain. And he went by the name of Michael then. Yeah. And uh, so, and then when uh, David and Richard, who was to become Ramdas, came into town, he started going to the Salty Hotel where they were staying, this really fancy hotel that none of us would ever go even close to, <laughs> um, to, to meet him. And I think they, they took acid there and... And then he came back with these, uh, like those Tika things you put on your third eye. Yeah. <laughs> but it looked like a mirror, kind of swirling yeah, mirror. Yeah. And uh, then he started, he kept talking about Richard. And then, and then they left on the Be Here Now journey. Wow. So he had met Neem Karoli Baba, obviously, Bhagavan Das. He the, had, yeah. yeah, he had met him, and, and yeah, and, and that's why they went on this journey to, right. to meet him. He told Ramdas about his guru. Did he tell you about it when you were together? About uh, yeah, Maharaj? Yeah, yeah, but he talked to me more about Kalu Rinpoche. He had been with Kalu Rinpoche mm. also. Right. He was wearing these sort of semi Tibetan robes when he was in Nepal. Right. Like, he had the skirt of a monk on, but then he would not wear any top, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and his hair was down. It was before his hair was in dreadlocks. So his hair was um, this long blonde hair, you know. Mm. But anyway, yeah. I don't remember him telling me about Nim Kaloli Baba. Mm. Interesting. But he must have told Ramdas about him and then. You know, they decided to go on that trip. So that was nineteen. That was the summer of nineteen sixty-seven. Mm-hmm. Um. Now, when did you meet um, His Holiness the Karmapa? Did was it during that time? No. So then I went back to the West around Christmas of nineteen sixty-seven having been in India and Nepal for about six months. And then uh, I made my way back overland from London uh, by, uh, by um, VW bus, going through all those countries, you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, mm. and so on, um, that you couldn't even think about driving through now. But at that time, you could. Anyway, so we arrived back in Kathmandu uh, toward the end of 1969. And so when I got to Kathmandu, I heard 
everyone was talking about this llama, Karmapa. Karmapa's here, Karmapa's in town. And uh, Kathmandu at that time was small, you know, it was this fairly small city. And Westerners all knew each other pretty much, you know, there weren't mm-hmm. that many of us. And so I decided to go see him. And I went to an empowerment up on Swambu on that same mountain that I had first met the teachings at. And in that in that visit in in uh, 1967 in that summer, I had started going every morning back to that temple that those Tibetan horns had come out of <laughs> that morning. Mm. I would go up there and sit in their pujas, their early morning pujas. And after a while, they started leaving a little carpet for me and um, giving me tea. Mm-hmm. So I sort of became adopted by the monastery. Wow. So it turned out that His Holiness Karmapa was in that monastery, sort of like he was in my monastery, you could say. And uh, so, yeah, so he was giving an empowerment, and he was doing it in the doorway of the monastery there in front of that Maitreya statue. Mm-hmm at the top and so that was the first time I saw him and when I walked by to get the blessing at the end like everybody does I felt this um, very strong connection with him and then I started feeling very agitated and I had the feeling that there was something that I was supposed to do and I didn't know what it was I couldn't figure out what it was, and I knew it had to do with finding my guru. And so I started kind of asking different people to be my guru, different lamas that were around there with Karmapa. Hmm. And, uh, and they kept saying, Karmapa, Karmapa, you know, not me, Karmapa. Hmm. And so... Um, I somehow didn't want Karmapa to be my guru because he was fat and he had a big (laughs) watch and he, you know, that wasn't my image of how my guru should look. (laughs) I thought he should look more like Kala Rinpoche, you know, sort of thin Mm. and gaunt and really yogic looking. Mm. Anyway, so I I was um, resisting this. And then... I had been reading a sadhana from, uh, that I had received from Trungpa Rinpoche uh, in Scotland. So before I made that overland trip back in 69, I'd spent six weeks, not six weeks, six months at the uh, Sami Ling Monastery mm-hmm. in Scotland where Trungpa Rinpoche was. Mm-hmm. And he arrived back from the hospital from his car accident right after I... Um, I arrived, the same day I arrived. So anyway, he had given me this sadhana, which I had been doing the whole way across, uh, across from from London to Kathmandu on this epic journey. And so there's a line in it about Karmapa, and it says, the only offering I can make is to follow your example. Hmm. And so... At a certain point in these weeks, it was right around Christmas time, 1969, 
when I couldn't sleep, I knew there was something I was supposed to do. I was doing that sadhana, and I read that line, and I thought, that's it. I'm supposed to become a nun because Karmapa is a monk, and the only offering I can make is to follow his example, and that's what he is, and so that's what I should do. Mm. So it was like somehow I finally got the message, and so I went to him, and um, at that point, I had a, a really different feeling about him. I was developing a feeling of devotion and letting go of my concept about what he should look like, what my guru should look like. And, um, and so I had long hair and braids, and the braids, I would weave um, silk thread into my hair. So I had these really long braids. So I took my braids and I made the motion of cutting, like cutting them off. To him. To him, in front of him, and um, there was a translator there, and he said, do, do you mean that you want to take vows? And I said, yes. And so he looked, his holiness looked at me with this amazing look, like he was tracking all my past lives mm -hmm. and my future. Mm. He looked for a long time, he was very quiet, just looking. And then he said, yes and meet me in Bodh Gaya. He didn't want to ordain me in Kathmandu for some reason. He, he said, meet me in Bodh Gaya, and I want to do the ordination there. And so there I was, you know, basically a hippie. I had a boyfriend. I was smoking beaties and <laughs> dope and, you know, just came, you know, wearing this long Afghani coat and, you know, these just really not living like a monastic at all. And um, so a few weeks later, he was going, and so I got a ticket on the plane to Patna and kissed my last boyfriend goodbye and threw away my beaties and got on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was ordained in Bodh Gaya um, in January of 1970. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I was ordained by the four tulkus, you know, the four main um, incarnate lamas under the Karmapa in a hotel room in Bodh Gaya. Jeez, wow. And then after that happened, I went outside and was, you know, just standing there. And the translator came out and said, His Holiness has made prophecy about you. And he, he said that he, he knows you from before, he recognizes you, and that you will benefit many beings through the Dharma. Hmm. Wow. And so, yeah, so there I was, I was 22 by then, and I actually wasn't even a Buddhist, I hadn't taken refuge, and I was a nun, I was a Buddhist nun, but I wasn't, you know, didn't know anything about what I had become. Jeez. And so then I went back to Kathmandu and uh, studied. Tibetan and went back to my monastery and um, that same place, Swambu, the Kargyu Monastery in Swambu Stupa, mm. and learned Tibetan and began to practice and and then left in after a year and went to Darjeeling and studied with Kala Rinpoche, went back to see His Holiness Karmapa in Sikkim and he asked me at that time to take the full ordination. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
at that time women didn't didn't hold the full ordination they still don't and he he wanted to reestablish that hmm. and uh, you probably know about there's a whole process that's trying to happen to get women to be yeah. able to have the full ordination yeah so obviously that didn't happen to me but um yeah so i studied with color and then came down to Bodhgaya, and that's when I met all of you. Mm. I just want everybody to know, um, Lama is is talking about the two. I mean, you would have you would know far better than I, but my experience, and I did have darshan of both of them, um, greatest lamas of the last century, um, and uh, just. Much later, I uh, actually had darshan of uh, His Holiness Karmapa uh, doing the black hat ceremony in Los Angeles many years later. Mm. And uh, as I, you know, it was just as you said, there's a procession and and, uh, each person gets to just have a brief direct encounter. When I got about three or four people away, you know, 10 feet away, whatever it was. And, and I could feel him. And I, I just, the first thought I, in my head was, geez, this is, this is Neem Karoli, this is Maharaji. This is the same thing. I got uh, exactly that same, whatever spaciousness, whatever I identified while I was with Maharaji, you know, for the couple of years, I got that same thing from him. So he, he always has meant so much to me, which is why I really wanted to get a little feel, you know, mm-hmm. for your encounter with oh, him. Sure. And then, you know, when I, last time I saw you a couple of years ago, um, we did get a chance to see his uh, successor, uh, the 17th Karmapa, you know, the young man, 27 years old or something. And we hung out with him, you know, a few of our friends, Sharon and KD, and uh, hung out with him in a in a hotel room, and at the end of it, I mean, it was all just lovely chat, chit chat kind of stuff about you know him coming to America and all that, and uh, and then at the end we you know did the the uh, scarf ceremony um, with each person, and he thanked us for coming. Um, and I walked out of there. I could not. First of all, the the reality that I experienced of th- that which reincarnates from, you know, from the 16th to the 17th, right? My direct yeah. was uncanny. I mean, this was not any kind of, you know, no mental stuff about reincarnation. What is it that, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. went away in a second. I And a- after he did this little thing with him, with me, um, for about two hours, I, I it was just deep meditation. I you know and we were traveling in a car. We went somewhere else to see you know, Thurman give a lecture, Robert Thurman give a lecture, and all that. Uh, the the power of that reality struck me so mm-hmm. forcefully in that moment. Uh, I'll never forget it. And and uh, the other, um, I think you know Dr. Larry Brilliant and his wife Girija, or know of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they went to see His Holiness Karmapa not long before he passed, and and he said, "What are you doing here? You know, oh, come to get your blessings." And and then he somehow Maharaji came up and said, "You've already had 
you know, all the blessings that you need by this bodhisattva. So we, there, there's always been this tremendous connection for us, not mm-hmm. only with uh, His Holiness Karmapa, but also Kalu Rinpoche, um, who um, Maharaji actually used to talk about to people who said, I want to go see him, and he had only the highest uh, uh, praise for him. So w- we, we were directly connected by Maharaji to to the Tibetans and and to and and getting those teachings, you know, inclusive of, of course, uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. So that's always been really close to me, and mm-hmm. and I never heard. I don't know. I probably, you know, we're getting older, so maybe you did tell me some of this stuff a long time ago. <laughs> but it's great to hear it again, as if I never heard it before. Um, and just for everybody out there, again, you know, the these, I mean. Lama, many people ask us, well, how do I encounter a being like this? You know, do mm-hmm. I have to go to India? Do I have to go to the East? Where, how do I do it? And uh, I know that, um, you know, it can be facile for us to say, well, A, right now, we don't know a lot of beings like these beings. There certainly are some. And, it, you know, His, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, we would always suggest to go, you know, uh, to any of his retreats and so on. But... Uh, and this is something David and I have been talking about uh, on some of these podcasts about this generation finding that thing through through people like you, Lama, through people like Ramdas, through whatever we may do, through, you know, through people that have brought these teachings back from the East and are sharing them over here in a way that allows people to connect. I mean, you know, we know tons of people who are devoted to Neem Karoli Baba now that never met him, and it was all through books and Ramdas now, Krishnadas or whoever. Um, and, and that reality is, is, you know, the same in the Tibetan tradition. You know, and there's some wonderful teachings. Why don't you just give us a little bit about, you know, your take on people asking that question? Mm. Yeah, well... One of the beautiful things in the Tibetan tradition is it's 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 going on. There, for example, there is the seventeenth Karmapa now, and he's he's in his late twenties. So it's the same being. It's not yeah. like he's, he's the a lesser model. He it it it's him, and he is really an amazing being. And he is teaching a lot to younger people, and he has a book out now about his conversations with some college students who came over and study with him for some time. It's a book book with Shambhala. But you can actually go to Dharamsala and, um, and then go down to the Tantric College and make an appointment and at least get a blessing from him. You can go through and you can meet him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... The other teacher that comes to my mind is Adzum Rinpoche, Adzum Pelo Rinpoche, who is one of my teachers. He's now, he must be in his mid-30s now. He's in Tibet, and he hasn't been able to get out since the Olympics happened, you know, that protest thing and so on. But he is... An amazing being. I, I watched him actually imprint his hand into a rock here, and his hand went into this rock like it was butter. Really? Wow. Yeah. So he has all chemical power. Yeah, he's a siddha, and mm. 
Um, and I've seen him do other kinds of miracles. So uh, that's the good news, is that there are these beings still coming. And so people of the younger generation shouldn't feel like they missed the boat, mm. that, that they can only have a secondhand experience. There, there, there are amazing beings. And then there's all of us who have uh, been now soaking in this um, brandy of the teachings for a long time and have done our best to uh, embody those teachings and practice them and become translators and um, bridges from east to west. So when I met all this, there was no, there were almost no translations. There were maybe five books of translated Tibetan texts, and so um, now there's a lot of translation, and there's quite a few people who are really Westerners who have studied for quite a long time and practiced a long time, and are teaching, and so. That's another possibility. Um, yeah, to, I, 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 yeah. Sorry. I, I wanted to just chirp in here that, you know, a lot of our listeners um, talk to us. They don't upbraid us, but they, they do comment that, you know, we have these conversations about people we've met and, and been around. And, and what you just said is, is consolation for them and, and, and inspiration. And I wanted to actually move on to one of your books, which has been enormously helpful to me. Um, and I'm of your generation. Uh, and I think it would be uh, apt to talk about it a little bit, if you don't mind, which is the book Feeding Your Demons, which you wrote, and which I lapped up, and I think is one of the most pragmatic, helpful things I've ever read. And you don't have to be um, in any tradition, I don't think, to understand mm -hmm. this book. Uh, we should explain that uh, Lama is uh, uh, involved in the transmission and the teachings of the Chode, uh, you know, teachings. And I, I'm not going to even try and explain that, but if you want to know more about that, you can read about it. And, but I, I did want to talk about, or ask you to talk about, because I think it's very interesting for our listeners, and some of whom have had no uh, formal training in anything except living, that the book... Um, Feeding Your Demons is extremely useful and clear uh, to people who have problems that we all have, neuroses and obsessions and anxieties and depressions and loss and all the things that happen in life. This book, which I, I, I just keep repeating the name so that people listening can just absorb it, Feeding Your Demons. Um, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about this. It's about actually embracing those things that horrify you instead of attacking them, instead of being in constant conflict. And one of the tenets of this, um, there are several, but I wanted you to comment on several of them in, s in different ways. Uh, you, you basically, very simplistically, you find your demon, uh, you ask what they want from you, what I need from you, when my need is met, I will feel this is the demon that you're imagining. And then, so there are five steps. Finding mm -hmm. the demon, personifying the demon, asking what it needs, becoming the demon, feeding the demon, and then resting in awareness after this process. 
Now, it might sound kind of abstract to people out there, but that's why I would like you, Lama, to talk about this process as it applies to everyone and anyone who has problems, which is 7.1 billion people <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> and um, I, I just love this book so much because it really is a clear way of, of tackling things which seem untackable to so many of us. Despite therapy, despite psychedelics, despite teachers, sometimes you're still out there lost and worried and anxious and depressed and so on. So would you talk about this, this process of uh, visualization, if you like? I don't like that word. But would you talk a little bit about these five steps? I know it's very complex and so forth, but you have summarized it beautifully in the book several times. So if you could just talk about that to, to us, I'd really, we would really appreciate that. Yeah, sure, I can do that. And I'm really happy to hear it's been helpful to you. Enormously, yeah. Um, so essentially, this is a method that I developed um, it's it's an example of what I was just talking about is how do we make these really quite foreign teachings not only accessible but useful in our lives so that the the eastern knowledge and wisdom doesn't become a kind of ornament like a necklace or a coat that we wear but really uh, doesn't have much effect on us. Mm. So, as you said, it's based on the Chiv practice from the 11th century yogini Machiklaptran. And the, the paradigm shift that's suggested by the process is moving from fighting our demons to feeding them, which might seem, when you first hear that, paradoxical. Why would I feed something which I want to get rid of? What I discovered is that the more we fight our demons, the stronger they get. They actually are fed by or their energy is e increased by our battle with them. And I think anyone that's ever struggled with an addiction knows this, that the, the more you fight it, uh, the more it takes you over. And so the, the shift that this is, suggests can happen at a personal level, but it also has collective implications in terms of politics, families, businesses, and so on. So essentially, the method is, for the, for the, at the personal level, is to uh, find the demon first inside your body. And so when I say demon, people might think, well, that I don't know what she's talking about. I don't have any demons. But think about anything that's taking your energy right now. Maybe it's a relationship is issue. Maybe it's a fear, like fear of, of your financial situation. Or maybe... It's a, ph a phobia that you have, or maybe it's an illness, or either chronic illness or a current pain uh, that you're just experiencing. So, uh, shall I shall I kind of take people through this briefly? Yeah, yes. I think that's yes. excellent. Yeah. Please. 
<laughs> okay. So so let's do this together then. We'll just do it briefly together. So think about something that you'd like to work with today. And it could be, as I said, something physical, and it could be an emotional issue. If it has to do with another person, if it's a relationship issue, then you're not going to work with them as a demon. Unfortunately, we like to think of them as the problem, but we're going to work with the feeling that comes up around them. Um, or you can work with sort of an ongoing core issue that you have or maybe something that's really coming up right now in your life. It's good to use something that feels active right now, something that's really draining you on some level to, to work with that. So I'll just take a moment. Let's take a moment and feel into what you want to work with today. Okay, so now think about that particular issue or situation or illness or pain, whatever you decided to work with. And now scan your body and feel where you hold this most strongly in your body. Where do you hold the energy connected to this particular demon in your body? Scanning your body and find where you hold it. And then bring your attention to that place. If this were to have a color, what color would it be? If this were to have a texture. What would the texture or consistency of this energy in your body be like? And what is its temperature? And now Intensify that sensation. Bring your full attention to that place in your body with that color, that, that, that consistency, and that temperature. Bring your full attention there and intensify it. And now, in the second step, we'll bring it out of our body and personify it in front of us as a being. So imagine bringing your attention to that place in your body where you're holding it, and then imagine that that color, that shape, and so on goes out of your body and is personified in front of you as a being with arms and legs a face, eyes. Uh, 
And now notice the details of this being. It's personified now in front of you. Its size, how big is it? Does it have a gender? What is the surface of its body like? What is the density of its body? What does its emotional state seem to be? And now look at the look in its eyes. What is the look in its eyes like? And now notice something about it that you did not see before. And now we're going to ask it three questions. I'll give you the questions one at a time and then you repeat that question asking the demon. What do you want? What do you really need? How will you feel if you get what you really need? And now, if you're in a situation where you can change places and actually move into that place where the demon is in front of you, perhaps another chair or another cushion, and face where you are sitting now, and imagine that you take the body of the demon, that you're actually becoming now the demon. You change places and you become the demon. And so let's take a moment for that to happen. Change places, physically change places. And then become the demon see your normal self in front of you and now as the demon will answer those questions so I'll give you the beginning of the answer and then you repeat the beginning of the answer and then complete the answer so as the demon really feel yourself in that body as a demon looking at your normal self, respond, what I want is, and tell your normal self what it is that you as a demon want. What I want is, what I really 
need is, what I really need is When I get what I really need, I will feel, when I get what I really need, I will feel and now Change places again. Go back to your original seat. Change places physically and face the demon again. Take a moment to come back into your own body, seeing the demon in front of you. And now imagine that your own body dissolves. Your, your whole body dissolves and it becomes a nectar, a liquid nectar. And that nectar has the quality of the feeling the demon will have when it gets what it needs. So, See that nectar now moving toward the demon and feeding it, feeding it. Perhaps it's going in through its skin, the surface of its body, through its mouth. This beautiful nectar that has the feeling that the demon will get if it gets what it needs is feeding the demon and feeding it to complete satisfaction. The nectar is moving toward the demon. The demon's able to take it in, to be nurtured by it, to be fed by it. And then you may notice the demon beginning to change as it's being fed, morphing perhaps into something else. Being fed to complete satisfaction. There's an infinite supply of nectar. And now the demon is completely satisfied. If, it's, if it doesn't feel completely satisfied at this point, imagine how it would look if it was completely satisfied. Completely satisfied. If there's a being that remains after the demon is completely satisfied, we'll ask that being if it's the ally. 
if the demon has completely dissolved, or if when you ask this being, are you the ally, it isn't the ally, we'll invite the ally to appear. So first let's take a moment. If there is a being that remains, ask it, are you my ally? Are you my ally? If it says yes, we'll work with that. If it has said no, or if the demon dissolved completely, so there's no form left, now invite the ally to appear. Now notice the qualities of the ally, its size, gender, it has one, the look in its eyes, and now we'll ask the ally some questions. I'll give you the questions and then you ask the ally. How will you help me? How will you protect me? What is your pledge to me? How can I access you? And now again, change places, change places physically, or sit in that other seat and become the ally. Take a moment to move, change positions, come into the body of the ally, and look at your normal self in front of you as the ally, from the ally's point of view. And now we'll answer those questions. I'll give you the beginning of each answer. You repeat the beginning and then finish it. I will help you by... I will protect you by... My pledge to you is you can access me by And now come back into your original seat, seeing the ally in front of you. Change seats physically. Come back into your own body and see the ally in front. 
take a moment for that transition. And now feel the energy of the ally pouring into your body. The energy of the ally pouring into every cell in your body. All the way down to your toes, through your arms, your fingers, top of your head, the whole trunk of your body. The ally's energy is pouring in and permeating your body. And now imagine that your own body seeing the ally in front the ally dissolves into light the ally dissolves into light notice the color of that light and then that light comes into your body pours into your body and that light permeates all the cells in your body the light from the ally the dissolved energy of the ally is this light and really notice how that feels in your body and then you with the integrated energy of the ally dissolve your whole body with the integrated energy of the ally dissolve and rest in what is ever present after the dissolution And then coming back into your body, feel the energy of the ally in your body as you come back into this present time. And if you've had your eyes closed, open your eyes. And as you do, keep the presence of the ally energy in your body. so that you remember how this feels and that's the five steps feeding a demon thank you I didn't mention before we started about how the actual demon transforms into the ally um, that 
in the traditional story that this is drawn from, Machiglaptran is attacked by a demon and then she offers her body as nectar to the demon and then the demon himself transforms into an ally who makes a promise to protect her. So he makes this pledge and so it's the actual energy of the demon that becomes the ally and that's an important concept that it's not like you're calling in an ally to kill the demon like you would say with a hydra um, like Hercules killing the hydra where then he called in his cousin as a um, an ally to kill that hydra with many heads um, but the actual demon itself becomes the ally. Hmm. Well, this is uh, this is a great. Uh, I'm just thinking as you say this uh, reference to Greek mythology, and um, you know, many people who have trouble with esoteric teachings have trouble um, understanding and um, occupying the space that these that that a myth that is translated into a, a teaching as you've done here um, can actualize and help you on a daily basis so all of us out there that, uh, including myself, that have trouble with visualizations, for, in, for instance. Mm. Um, this, uh, I have to tell you, I haven't done anything like this in a very long time. It is, I've always said, this is kind of not my nature, you know. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I am, you know, the effectiveness of this by virtue of how you have, um, presented this in its most practical sense of what a, what that demon is and what uh, it, feeding it and, and the ways that you've talked about it and not fighting your, um, you know, all of these things. I mean, it just makes so much sense. But beyond the sense, I th you know, I'm hoping that everybody else out there has had a little bit of the experience I know David and I uh, have had not much good for talking though once you go through it here uh <laughs> <laughs> i wanted to ask you something which might occur to people listening and certainly occurred to me the traditional or that's the wrong word but the, the sort of conventional wisdom about battling something as serious as cancer or hiv aids the visualizations are involved in all kinds of battling you know you battle the bad cells with the good cells <laughs> and so forth and in your book brilliantly i think I mean, I can't encourage people enough to read this book. It really helps. Anyway, in your book, you talk about that being not the paradigm of battling, but it, obviously in feeding your demon, you are feeding your demon. You are finding what satisfies it. And how would you, um, Lama, how, just talk a little bit about that. About even if you have, you know, just the flu or an earache or just depressed, or, but, but way mm -hmm. to the extreme... I know in your book you do. There's a very touching, beautiful story about a gentleman who had AIDS and his uh, his his redemption really via this chode uh, teaching and practice. T 
talk to us a little bit about the difference between battling something which is killing you on one level and embracing and feeding mm-hmm. that. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, that that is really the key point here is that the battle doesn't work and that's why we have people with addictions and and so on that just go on and on for years and so the the idea of feeding not fighting is that these things whether it's an illness or whether it's a psychological situation like a fear or depression or anxiety that though it's a it's a part of ourselves and that that part of ourselves is trying to get our attention so you could say that with feeding your demons we're literally paying with our attention in other words when we say pay attention we're giving something the attention that it deserves instead of for example when we get sick we immediately just think how can I, how can i get rid of this we we never would say what is this what does it need and so when you take that approach of integration and dialogue rather than battle then you end up with a healthy psyche because when we're battling within ourselves and trying to um, annihilate the shadow issues that we have they don't actually go away they become more problematic and so really if we think of this as a part of ourselves that's trying to get our attention and we give it attention with love and compassion then that peace of our of our shadow self if you will if you know that concept from jungian psychology that the shadow is the parts of ourselves that we don't want to admit to ourselves that we have them uh, maybe it's something like jealousy maybe it's envy maybe it's an eating disorder who knows but in any case those those pieces of ourselves that we wish weren't there and that we're maybe embarrassed by that instead of denying them then we ask them what they want and what they need and how they will feel if they get what they need and then through that uh dialogue that piece of ourselves can be integrated and so rather than being someone who's at war within themselves that piece of ourselves or those pieces and there's certainly lots of different demons that you can work with become integrated and so there's a sense of wholeness and balance within the psyche rather than good battling evil mm-hmm. that, that that idea of evil trying to repress it uh, trying to get rid of it that we actually meet that find out what it is and then integrate it and then the psyche becomes balanced beautifully said mm. wonderful mm. this is this is so much of what we are encounter with uh, our gang that's uh, become listeners or just uh, emails that we go back and forth on with people is so 
critically this point of, you know, how people are, I mean, it's in our culture, it's in our genes to fight everything. And uh, this is a radical, uh, in, in many ways for many people, mm-hmm. new way of approaching how you live day to day and how you uh, uh, interact with every piece of your life. And this can include people as well. And yeah, you speak about uh, Gandhi uh, having to deal with some English um, bureaucrat or rather high bureaucrat and people were saying you can't meet with him or whatever and he's your enemy and he's our enemy for sure and he said well okay and then the guy came and he made him a cup of tea and being English I know what that means and um, they had a cup of tea together and they talked and gradually it softened and there was good result from this with no fighting no animosity no cold or hot anger just reconciliation and that's brilliant, yeah. isn't it? Isn't that amazing? And that that very person historically is is been shown that that same he was an actually an Eng- English army officer. He became a major advocate for the nonviolent shift mm. in government Great. from yeah. from with uh, England leaving India. So it was literally a case of a demon being transformed into an ally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. right. Oh, there's a, there's right. another example uh, in the book that I found very interesting from Africa where um, it was in Guinea and the Portuguese were occupying Guinea at that time. This was in the 70s. And there was somebody named um, um, Amil Cabral, and um, he, his approach was to capture the Portuguese soldiers, and then he would feed them really well, and talk to them, <laughs> talk to them about the political situation and why Portugal should leave Guinea and why they should be independent, and then he would release them, wow. and so he literally was feeding the enemy, and those. Soldiers, when they were released, became actively involved in helping Guinea become independent. Well, that's amazing. Yes, that's yeah. wow, incredible. Oh. Oh. And it happened. It happened. It was a nonviolent transition. Hmm. Oh boy! Wow, this is just incredible, Lama. Thank, Thank you, you yeah. so much yeah. for uh, for giving us. Uh, all of this information and, and so valuable to everybody. And it's not, you don't have to become a Tibetan Buddhist to take advantage of this. You don't have to become anything. One thing, though, I, if you want more information from Lama and or participa- uh, participation in some of the retreats she runs and so on, um, why don't you give us um, our, our website and a way to get in touch with you, Lama. Yes, of course. Um, so I have a center in southern Colorado called Tara Mandala, and it's a 700-acre retreat center, but I also teach frequently around the country and also in Europe. And so the website is Tara Mandala, T-A-R-A-M-A-N-D-A-L-A dot org. Hmm. And um, the phone number for information 
if anybody still uses phones anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Not much. <laughs> yeah, I know. 970-731-3711. And we're going to get this up on uh, mindrollingpodcast.com for everybody to be able to refer to uh, and and also, you know, really consider uh, getting the book from which uh, Tultrum gave this um, exercise, Feeding the Demons. You can get it on Amazon, I am sure. And you can be good to Dave and I by going through our portal on mindrollingpodcast.com and ordering the book or anything from Amazon through there. That's our little ad, Lama, about uh, support here. Yeah, check out Women of Wisdom also, which was Lama's first book, I believe, and published in 84. And is just a fantastic thing because we, we, we become acquainted with, with uh, six yoginis, Tibetan women who were... To say high beings is something of a, a reduction. I can't use a word. I don't know. Yogini is as good a word as any. It's a fa- fantastic read and also very useful for men and women of this time. Uh, go to Amazon and, and buy it. Yes. So again, um, thank you so much. It's it's uh, what a wonderful way to catch up a little bit, Lama. Uh, mm. After all these years, and uh, we have to make a pilgrimage to Taramandala. I'm yes. tending to do that for sure, and um, and we we honor you and your work, and thank you so much. Thank, thank you, Raghu, and David. It was really a pleasure to be with you and with all the listeners this morning. And I hope that our time together was helpful, and I really. Think what you're doing is wonderful and send you lots of love. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>